And welcome back to Regionally Speaking with your host, Tom Maloney and Dee Dotson. 2023 was the hottest year on record, and a lot of U.S. grain and livestock production suffered. Against this backdrop, farmers in Indiana are telling Congress to pass the latest farm bill that gives them the tools and support they need to lead the transition to more sustainable food production. The 2018 Farm Bill expired on September 30th, 2023, without a plan or replacement in place. Farm Bill conservation programs help farmers stay productive in the face of less predictable weather while continuing to provide the food we need to support a growing world. Until recently, there was only enough funding for one in three farmers who wanted to participate in these popular programs. But today, we have more resources for conservation on the farm than ever before. It's crucial to ensure that this momentum continues with the upcoming Farm Bill. The Farm Bill must be reauthorized by Congress every five years. Failure to reauthorize the law or allow it to completely lapse would have devastating effects on the nation's farmers who would find themselves dealing with price controls from the 1930s and 1940s. Joining us now to talk about the advocacy work he is doing to ask Congress for a pro-conservation farm bill is Brent Bible, owner and managing partner of Stillwater Farms in Lafayette, Indiana. Brent, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Good morning, Dee. Uh, thanks for having me. Brent, so you're with us today to discuss the call for action that you as the owner and managing partner of Stillwater Farms in Lafayette, as well as farmers from across the country are pleading for, and that is the passage of a farm bill. Now, most of us as consumers may not be aware of what has happened the last few months regarding this topic. So let's start here. Can you kind of share with our listening audience what the Farm Bill is, as well as help us understand how did the 2018 Farm Bill expire without a 2023 bill on the ready from both the House and Senate Agriculture Committees? Sure. It, it, in general terms, the, the, the Farm Bill is a, is a funding mechanism and it's a structural mechanism for uh, agricultural policy uh, in the United States. So it's Congress's uh, mandate to the, the administration, to USDA. Uh, this is, these are the programs that we want uh, USDA to focus on. Uh, they, these are the ways that we want to help farmers uh, implement programs uh, and, and have safety net funding in place uh, to, to continue to, to farm and, and to, to grow food. And uh, you'll many times hear Congress uh, and administration folks refer to uh, food security as national security. So it's it's important that we have a uh, a an established and and consistent food base and food source for for the country for the, for our people, and uh, that that does establish national security as well. So that's that's kind of the idea behind the farm bill. It's it's generally uh, renewed every five years. Or so, uh, unfortunately, uh, like you alluded to, the 2018 Farm Bill was not uh, renewed in 2023 uh, on schedule as it should have been. Instead, uh, Congress voted to to extend the 2018 bill for one additional year uh, so that they could work out the 
the details and and hopefully pass a farm bill uh, this year. Uh, that's a little bit, I, I think, in question as we sit here today. So that's uh, one of the things that that I want to stress and urge that that we we certainly need that farm bill to be passed this year to to just could have that continuity in in funding and in programming uh, for farm policy going forward. Brent, so you spoke about implemented programs. So do farm bill-related programs stop now that the bill has not been reauthorized? It, they, they have not stopped. The, the, the fact that Congress voted to have a one-year extension or a continuation of the 2018 bill, what that meant was that, that funding uh, under the 2018 bill that was in place continued as if uh, the farm bill was just a, a, another year longer. So that funding has continued, but then if, if there's not a passage this year, there's question as to whether whether they would grant another one-year extension, whether they might grant a three- or four-year extension and just roll out to the, the next farm bill, or worst-case scenario, it would be that, that a farm bill is not passed and an extension is not passed, then we actually roll back to some uh, some very historic or, or archaic uh, program and funding support that goes back uh, just kind of back to post-World War II. So uh, we would see a, quite a bit of disruption in uh, ag policy, ag programming, uh, if, if something weren't, weren't to happen in the next few months. So, Brent, let's let's stay there for a moment. So, as you just alluded to, the Farm Bill also suspends long-abandoned permanent laws for certain farm commodity programs from, from the 1940s that use supply controls and price regimes. Let's talk more about the financial impact that could have if we do not get a full Farm Bill in place. Well, I think one of the most, uh, the, the, the biggest impact would be the uncertainty that it would create and the 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 absence then, absence then of of safety net funding, uh, particularly crop with crop insurance, that that would be the big uh, big issue, and and funding of conservation programs. Uh, that's a that's a huge part. Uh, one of the big titles uh, of the farm bill that that would then be in question, be unfunded, and it, and that uncertainty that it would create uh, essentially would would cause producers to. To change the way they're they're doing things, change it would change the way I farm. Uh, I, I would have to to, to to mitigate those risks somehow, and I I, I truly don't know how that would be. It would it would be a uh, some uncharted territory. So we certainly want to see Congress move forward and and, and get a farm bill, a, a, a five year farm bill in place, uh, ideally. You know, as you shared, farmers are asking elected officials to support full conservation funding in the next farm bill. You, you just so eloquently shared that. And you've shared how you really don't know how, because it's uncharted territory, how that will look. But just so that our listening audience, because most of us here in Northwest Indiana, we are not farmers and we are not even farmer adjacent. And so we may not really and truly understand why this is so important to support full conservation funding. So can you kind of help our listening audience hit home to help them understand why they need to rally and get behind this. The, the conservation program funding has, is a, a vital piece to the farm bill, and, and it gives producers like myself the, the opportunity to participate in programs that, that mitigate some risk uh, over time 
and also enhance the, the, the environment uh, around our operation. Uh, for example, uh, in our operation in particular, we've taken advantage of conservation program support, uh, financial and, and, and technical support to uh, implement uh, filter strips around waterways. We've used it to implement uh, pollinator uh, habitat creation. And in the past, we, we've done wetlands enhancement projects uh, uh, using the, the conservation program funding and, and, and service, technical services. Uh, that, those, those types of programs allow us to pull less productive or maybe non-productive acres uh, away from, from what would be traditional crop production and, and use them to, to, to maybe what they're better suited for. Uh, it, it gives the opportunity to, to uh, create some, some wildlife habitat, uh, some ecosystem uh, balance that that certainly uh, it, it, it's hard to argue that the, those things aren't uh, an asset to to the overall agricultural ecosystem. So uh, we we really appreciate the opportunity to be able to to, to uh, participate in those types of programs and the fact that they are voluntary and that they are incentive based. Is huge for us. We 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 feel like uh, the fact that they are voluntary programs that allows us to to identify in our particular operations and on our particular farms what programs may be best suited for uh, particular situations, particular acres, that that type of thing. So uh, we we kind of know our 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 ground the best, uh, just like every producer across the, the United States knows their their farming operation the best, and and they can make good decisions about uh, programs that, that that will fit into their oper operations well. So that's that's why that 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 voluntary and incentive based program uh, philosophy is, is is so important to me as well. Finally, Brent, we are having this conversation today because Indiana farmers are pleading for a passage of a farm bill to help them survive, right? So what is next? What are the next steps? What happens now? Kind of next steps, the, the House Ag Committee and the Senate Ag Committee are continuing to have conversations uh, amongst themselves to, to try to work out uh, funding issues, funding compromises, and, and, and program issues. Uh, compromises as well to to ensure that that there can be an agreement reached uh, when, when it would come time to, to pass the farm bill through not only through committee but then through uh, both the the House and Senate and I think it's important to note that the farm bill historically is one of the most bipartisan uh, compromised pieces of legislation that that gets passed on a on a on a routine basis. Uh, it, it it it's something that uh, when when you talk about food and nutrition and agricultural uh, production, uh, people really on both sides of the aisle are able to come come around that issue and and make sure that that we come up with with a uh, a bipartisan solution that that ensures that that food security that we talked about earlier. So it, uh, 
I, 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 I do have, I, I am optimistic that it can happen and that it will happen, uh, but it's just going to be a matter of, of uh, our, our legislators on, on both sides of the aisle working together to, to come up with uh, uh, a, a good program, a good bill uh, to put forward. Absolutely. Brent, you know what? I thank you so much for spending time with us today on Lakeshore Public Media, sharing this important topic, because, again, I want to reiterate that while we are all consumers, not many of us here in the region are adjacent to a farm or farmers. And so we really and truly don't understand the impact that this could have on food security for all of us, not only here in the Hoosier State, but across the United States. So I thank you so much for spending time with us again today on Lakeshore Public Media. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about uh, uh, agriculture a little bit and hopefully uh, uh, spread that message. Brent Bible, the owner and managing partner of Stillwater Farms in Lafayette, Indiana, grows corn and soybeans for seed production, ethanol, and food. Brent has collaborated with legislative officials on policy advocacy about agriculture and rural development, and he serves as chairman of the board for his local rural electric cooperative. You're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Media. In today's highly competitive housing market, millions of Americans are priced out of buying a home, often competing with all-cash offers well above asking prices. Rents are skyrocketing too, causing overall housing availability to collapse at its fastest rate on record. Millennials have come to the market. They see boomers hanging on to inventory even longer. And so you have a generation of people that are locked out of affordable housing and have no choice but to pay rent and pay even more for rent. We turn now to Andrew Bradley, Policy Director at Prosperity Indiana, as well as Toya Moore, Executive Director with the Northwest Indiana Reinvestment Alliance, as well as a representative from Lake County Housing Task Force. Andrew and Toya, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes. So as Dee alluded to on the intro there, um, we see a lot of individuals right now, uh, we we hear the term being locked out of the housing market. What does that mean to be locked out? Quite literally, there, there is no key under the mat for them to get into the back door or they, they can't even get into the subdivision. The way that I think about it is, is more that there is either a, a ladder of housing or a pipeline of housing and that there are clogs in that pipeline. And we're seeing that those clogs really uh, congeal even more during the pandemic. But stepping back, Indiana had a pre-existing housing affordability and stability crisis that we're now seeing being exacerbated by things like the ongoing effects of the pandemic, but also by this inflation and and cost crisis. Um, Statewide in Indiana, there are only 38 affordable and available rental units per 100 extremely low-income households. And that makes it harder for those families to be able to rent. In Northwest Indiana, the crisis is even more severe. There's only 32 affordable and available units for every 100 of the lowest lowest income households. So that means those folks are competing against each other um, or they're making do with substandard units. And then that means they're not able to move up that pipeline. So I'm really interested to talk about ways that we could unclog the pipeline fill in the missing rungs in that ladder so that we have enough for everybody in Northwest Indiana. Toya, what are you seeing from residents across Northwest Indiana when they talk about being locked out of the the housing economy? What I see is the affordability. 
Um, as we know, rent rates have increased. Um, I'm actually working with a few tenants now where their rent increased $200 within the last year. And they found out in April it was going $200 in July. That's $200 a month. $200 not a month, yeah. Yeah, not a year. That's $200 a month. That, no, that's an extra $200 a month. Yeah, yeah $2,400 annually. Right. And so with the pandemic and the, the reducing income or in, um, unemployment, it is being hard for homeowners, for renters, I'm sorry, to even move or be able to have afford the rent. So, like I said, in April, she was told that her rent would go up $20 a year. She had to sign a new lease in July. And if she did not sign the lease for the $200 increase for a year, she can go for a $300 increase to do month to month. So, it becomes unaffordable. And it was substandard living as well. So, she was even asking questions like, okay, you're increasing the rent $200 a month, but are you going to do these repairs or these updates? And he said, no, I'm not. So she didn't really want to sign a lease for another year with a $200 increase each month. However, she couldn't definitely afford another $100 to do a month-to-month to see if she could move. And like I said, the rents are increasing. So it's really unaffordable for renters, and they're getting locked out and stuck in homes they don't want to be in. So what what are um, I guess substandard living conditions? I think uh, you know if I'm getting an apartment, right? If if I'm a renter, I've got I've got working plumbing, I've got access to running water, I've got a stove and a refrigerator that work, um, I've got heat and an air conditioner. Maybe it's an in, an in window unit or it's actually central air within the building, you know. And I've got doors that lock and I've got available parking. I'm I'm close to amenities that I need. Might it be work, a grocery store, entertainment, etc. But that's not the case for a lot of individuals who are renting right now. So can we talk about sort of what what that's what what substandard living conditions are like for some of these individuals across the region? For in this specific case, as you say, the doors that lock. We were ta- I was speaking with her and things of nature that her door does not lock properly. It's easy to open, and they were supposed to be repairing the lock. Um, she has issues with windows that were not locking properly. Um, I know that she needed, I think the home had a carpet that had been um, gotten wet. They were supposed to re-put new carpet down. Things like that were not done as far as just a few things for this specific individual. But yeah, they are just, it's really getting um, unaffordable and they're not making any updates or changes to be able, you know, so they can't move around. Yeah. So Toya. Toya, I'm really glad you mentioned that um, it, because that issue of affordability uh, and uh, what people are able to, to get for basic health and safety standards, that plays a big role into that cost pinch that we're talking about. Um, across Indiana, uh, 72% of the lowest income households are spending 50% of, or more of their income on housing. And in Northwest Indiana, that rate's even higher, 76%, so over three out of every four of the low bottom 30% of income bracket are spending more than half of their income on housing. So they're making do with the places that don't have the locks, that have uh, the mold on the walls and the faulty wiring um, that our organization, Prosperity Indiana, gets letters and calls about all the time. And I think a reason for that is that in Indiana, we don't have enforcement of habitability standards. Indiana is one of only five states that doesn't allow renters to be able to withhold their rent, put it into escrow in a bank, 
or repair the problem themselves and deduct it from their rent when there are those heavy health and safety violations. So what that means is there's fewer places to go around, and that's why there's that such high competition and people are spending so much of their income just to be able to afford a basic habitable place. So Andrew, I think you answered my question. Toya talked about substandard conditions. My next question would be, I know it's very expensive to move because if you're being charged $200 more per month in the current place, you're gonna probably be charged twice that if you move. And so what what is the remedy? Is that where your organization step in to kind of help since there are no resources available on the government level? There was a rental assistance program, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, ERA 1 and 2, but that has ended. Um, I know there are some local organizations that will offer rental assistance, but that's just a temporary fix. Um, I think there, I, 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 you know, we, I talk to a lot of groups and uh, I know we're trying to figure out a remedy that, you know, of course, income is a big thing. Affordability and have affordable housing is the most important thing. Um, so that's one that, like, you know, just like Andrew said, if you're paying 50% of your income or 70% of your income in Northwest Indiana, the number should be 31. Your, more, your, your housing should not be over 31% of your income. That allows you to have other income for your other transportation, utilities, that kind of thing. So if you're paying that, you cannot move. You cannot afford even just your basic living. You're just paying to basically live in this home and not meet your other needs. So that is something we're talking about and trying to, like Andrew said, what are some remedies to this? I mean, there are some quick fixes or some temporary fixes to assist, but how do we get, you know, a better fair rent and affordable housing and affordable rent? That's, the, the, you know, the question that I'm trying to figure out and work with other organizations to figure out as well. We're talking with Andrew Bradley, Policy Director for Prosperity Indiana, as well as Toya Moore, Executive Director of the Northwest Indiana Reinvestment Alliance and member of the Lake County Housing Task Force. Andrew, go ahead. I was going to say that um, while the Lake County Emergency Rental Assistance Program, that has closed, there are still emergency rental assistance uh, resources available through the statewide program, which has come to take over that area. And that's available at indianahousingnow.org. So would want to encourage anybody who's facing emergency rental uh, problems to, to look there. And, and that is a great point to talk about is how many folks have seen those um, emergencies arise. And just as Toya mentioned, if you're spending over half of your income on housing, any disruption to you, to that income stream is likely going to push you into crisis. Uh, so we know from Indiana's 211 service that housing has been the number one reason that people have called in for help during the pandemic and also the top unmet need. And, and I just looked now, This you can go to Indiana 211 um, and see their housing dashboard, or, or excuse me, their uh, all of their data. Housing is the top reason for calls in Lake County as well, 9,500 plus calls during the pandemic and the top unmet need, over a thousand calls to 211 that they haven't been able to connect with services. There's all kinds of reasons for that, but it points to housing being a top need among Hoosiers. And from my perspective, that's a um, we need to make sure that our policymakers also see that as a top need, that that should be way at the top of their priorities when they're coming back for a 
a special session or for our um, representatives in Congress, that they're going in knowing that Hoosiers really need help with housing. So let's talk about, uh, uh, we've talked about the pandemic a little bit, but let's talk about sort of the the widening gap of affordability. We're, of course, staring at uh, increases in inflation right now, along with, um, you know, the recession that, frankly, a lot of people have already said is here, uh, but economists still haven't labeled our current economic woes as a recession yet, but they might further down the line. Let's talk about the impact of the pandemic and, and the, ha- the, the impact that it's had on the, the gap when it, comes to, when it comes to income accessibility and individuals either climbing a corporate ladder to bring more dollars in or being able to find a new job or being, being able to find work at all as some individuals have had to scale back because of health reasons and or they've lost their jobs because of closures in business during COVID. That has been a major impact. Um, and that has actually set a lot of people back because it, I've worked with people in this area that have um, been in their place of employment for 20 years and the company closed. Um, and so they're having to actually reinvent themselves, get a new um, experience, education. And so they're starting over. So they're actually going down to, some, in many cases, the lowest income they've received, you know, had in a few years. So... COVID has been a very um, impactful to the housing. We deal with housing as far as rentals and as far as mortgages. And as Andrew said, that's the number one concern. Um, People are concerned about staying in their homes and they don't have their mortgage or they don't have their rent. And of course, you know, a lot of companies are not opening back up or they're hiring remotely and paying less. So that is, 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 I would say to be able to reinvent themselves and go up that corporate ladder is a lot of people are starting over or not getting the increase or going up as they should since the pandemic, since COVID-19. Andrew, what have you seen with regards to the, uh, the widening uh, economic and social uh, gap with regards to COVID-19? From a statewide perspective, Prosperity Indiana has been tracking the impact of the housing stability crisis through COVID. And something that we've seen is that housing instability can be a real delayed uh, indicator of economic instability. So households, they may have lost uh, their, lost a job somewhere in the household months ago and have sent down their savings. Uh, they've borrowed from families, they've used emergency resources, they do everything they can uh, because the quote goes, the rent eats first. Um, however, let's say the new variant comes along and hits the household again, and that's the place where they suddenly can't make ends meet and they could still be at risk of eviction. So throughout the pandemic, we've seen in Lake County, for example, a 12% eviction filing rate. So 12%, more than one in 10 of all renter households on average have seen an eviction. What does that 12% mean uh, pre-COVID? Is 12% an increase? Is 12% a decrease? Where where does that 12% lie in terms of uh, what we've seen prior to? Uh, That's a good question. And there is a a difference. Um, I I don't have the the pre-pandemic stats right in front of me, but I do know that before the pandemic, um, actually eviction, Indiana as a state had a 4% eviction rate um, every year. So that's definitely, you know, a little bit of apples and oranges, but the risk 
is, is that for one in 10 renter households in Lake County, for example, mm -hmm. they're going to have what we call a scarlet E on their record. So even if that case never goes to court, they're going to have that eviction filing that if they don't get it expunged, and that's something that just passed through the General Assembly this past year, that could prevent them from getting into new housing. And I did want to mention that it's not just Lake County. It's not just the, the largest, most populated areas. Jasper County, for example, has an eviction filing rate of over 7%. That's still way above that pre-eviction, uh, pre-pandemic eviction mm -hmm. rate. And what we see happen is, is that if families have that disrupted housing, um, it means that kids may not be able to perform academically. It means that employment may not stay stable. And really, when you're talking about employers who are talking about problems filling jobs, especially in the service sector, um, when it comes to nursing assistants or people to be able to be school assistants or mechanics, et cetera, that's really the part of the economy that's going to be the most volatile if we don't provide that stability in house. So, Toya, I, I just have a, a question, just bringing it back locally for, for just a second. You know, we talked about the many forces that have combined to create a rental market that's setting a record high rents as well as lack of vacancies. With that being said, people like myself who have called Greater Chicago Land home for many years are being outbid and in many instances outpriced out of the market. Have we seen an influx of people moving from Greater Chicago Land to Northwest Indiana where the cost of living is a lot lower? Yeah. Um, that is definitely. Um, actually, as you know, our our office is located in Hammond, Indiana, um, right by the state line of Illinois, and we have a quite a bit, a large number. Uh, I would say about twenty to thirty percent people coming over to our office to find out about our housing programs or lenders to get loans or moving this way. Um, actually, even in the um, Mirrorville Crown Point area. Um, I have uh, teenage children and some of the other clients I work with, a lot of uh, people are coming from Chicago and putting their renting over here and putting their children in the school system here. So there has been an, definitely an increase. And because it is, it's, the cost of living is a lot lower in Indiana than it is in Illinois, so they're coming over here to be able to afford have, having housing affordability. So that is a large increase. We know that the access to not only housing, but owning a home for many individuals is really the first step or the biggest step in terms of acquiring wealth and acquiring wealth through generations. What kind of an impact now do we see in this uh, this still COVID world slash, I guess, maybe post-COVID world in terms of um, the future outlook for housing? I mean, Andrew, you mentioned we're seeing eviction rates of 12%. In Lake County, we're seeing eviction rates of 7% in Jasper County throughout the pandemic. And as you uh, as you mentioned as well, that housing is so oftentimes the last thing on the list to kind of show how bad things are. The, the car has already been sold. The credit cards have already been maxed out to go ahead and keep things afloat uh, before they either A, finally have to sell off a house or B, get evicted from a house. What is the long-term ramifications for Hoosiers both across the state and right here in Northwest Indiana when it comes to this, uh, this housing affordability crisis? I, I think that really we are talking about housing is the, literally the, the foundational part of economic security, not only for families, but for their communities and then for the state at large. 
So if we're talking about having hundreds of households who are still at risk um, or who are in that process of they've had to move out early and go into a place that's smaller or they might end up with their couch on the street still, that really has a, a damaging impact on the community at large. So the stakes are really high. If we're talking about needing to, to build a stronger workforce um, and be able to find places for all those people to live, we need to make sure that the children um, in our schools know where they're going to be able to stay, not just tonight, but a month from now. Um, we've also seen their large health impact of housing instability and evictions. Families that are, go through that tend to have higher lead exposure. They have higher rates of in, uh, in, uh, <laughs> infectious disease um, because they may end up being put together in couch surfing situations or homelessness shelters. So again, the, the stakes really couldn't be higher. Um, and again, it points to a place of priority for the community and for our policymakers. So I just have one more question before I let you guys go, because we've mentioned the rental assistance program a couple of times, and it's something that I'm not familiar with. And so my question to you guys, it, the rental assistance program that is available uh, both locally as well as statewide, is it for to keep a tenant in their current place or is the program available to help tenants move to a, another place? Because I can't imagine a program would help a tenant continue to pay rent for substandard living? Well, the program that um, rental assistance is to keep them in their current place. Oh, wow. Um, and Andrew, you may know if the ones in the state of Indiana they're doing will allow them to move or maybe pay a deposit. But the one that we were um, working with and partnering with the state of Indiana, it was to pay past due, past due rent as well as help them up um, monthly. They can recertify every three months and get assistance as well if their income had not changed due to uh, they were impacted by COVID, different things like that. So it was to keep them in their current unit for the program that I was working with. But Andrew may have a little more details on the one specific of Indiana right now. I think that's right. You know, really the purpose of the program is housing stability. And as we've already talked about, like if you're having to move in a hurry, uh, chances are you may end up in a smaller or worse place, or it's not a good opportunity to move up the ladder. You're just trying to keep stable. However, it's worth saying that with that emergency rental assistance program, um, there are opportunities that, that landlords can participate in that process and, and help make sure that their tenants stay stably housed. So do want to encourage anybody to visit indianahousingnow.org um, for those resources. But, you know, there are cases where sometimes a, a landlord says, I'm not going to accept this uh, rental assistance. And there are options for renters to then be able to take that assistance and use it to look for a different place. So that, that is an option if there is not that sort of uh, cooperation by both sides. Andrew Bradley, Policy Director for Prosperity Indiana, as well as Toya Moore, Executive Director of the Northwest Indiana Reinvestment Alliance and member of the Lake County Housing Task Force. Thank you both so much for joining us here on Regionally Speaking to talk about this ongoing crisis uh, that doesn't make the headlines in, in the form of housing, specifically here for Hoosiers in Northwest Indiana. And uh, we're looking forward to hopefully seeing some relief for Hoosiers uh, when it comes to rental and mortgage assistance here across Northwest Indiana. Thank you both so much for joining us here on Regionally Speaking. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You're listening to Regionally Speaking or Lakeshore Public Media.
Northwest Indiana aging and or incapacitated adults unable to care for themselves or make decisions on their own face a precarious situation. And residents afflicted with conditions such as dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and mental illnesses are at a high risk for exploitation without a trustworthy guardian to ensure they receive the care and support they need. To protect the community's most vulnerable people, in 2001, the Volunteer Advocates for Seniors and Incapacitated Adults, or VASIA program, was started, a collaborative effort between Franciscan Health Hammond and Lake County Superior Courts. We turn now to LaVon Jarrett, director of VASIA, to learn more about the program in recognition of National Family Caregivers Month. LaVon, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Hi, Dee. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, LaVon, tell us first the genesis of the program, why it was started, as well as its mission. I, I love the word genesis because that is exactly what it was. The beginning of a great idea back in 2001. And, you know, some people still remember Franciscan Hammond currently as the former St. Margaret. And that's actually where the idea originated. N-E-R, there was a high number of seniors presenting incapacitated without decision makers. And so big salute to the president of the hospital at that time, who was Mr. Thomas Grisback, who is retired, but he was one of the, the very proactive presidents and CEOs of that time that said, you know what, I think, I think St. Margaret needs to be a lot more proactive. And I do believe in divine appointment, and that's exactly what happened to him. He met a young lady by the name of Rebecca Pryor out of Indianapolis who had a consulting organization, a consulting firm, uh, but was also very instrumental in the court-appointed Special Advocates for Children organization. And those two brain minds, brain powers, put their ideas together uh, at a dinner, and that's how some of the conversation began to surface as to what if they're was a program that was designed like CASA, but that was targeted for the seniors that were showing up in ER. And um, the, the magic just began to happen from there. So, you know, this thought just came to me. Since it was based at Franciscan Health Hammond, which is on the border of the lovely state of Illinois, I can yeah. only imagine the organization serves community members from both states. Would that be correct? That is very correct, Dee. In fact, both campuses, the Hammond campus at the time and Dyer definitely because we do sit on the border. And that was another part of the influx too of individuals because we were the Hammond location and Dyer location actually are and still is the 911 for a lot of the skill care facilities that sit on the border or that are close to the border in Illinois. Definitely. We're speaking with LaVon Jarrett, Director of the Volunteer Advocates for Seniors and Incapacitated Adults, or VASIA program, now based at the Franciscan Health Dyer location. So VASIA, as we've shared, is a volunteer program. So take a moment to talk about the volunteers that give of their time, their talents, and their resources to help serve seniors and incapacitated adults in our community. Sure. Um, remarkable people. Uh, we call them angels. We, we have acronyms for these wonderful folks. The, the experience ranges from retired teachers to social workers to caregivers to CNAs. This is a rich pool of experience. And we're, we're always so honored to have people that just want to do it. 
a lot of the times what we're noticing is the motivation behind the interest is that their caregivers already or they have an aged person within their family that they're seeing some things happen and they want to be a better resource for them. Some are doing it in the name of uh, deceased loved ones and they want to kind of continue a legacy of advocacy. The experience level is is phenomenal and the commitment level. Our volunteers do have to be 21 because we love to partner with the local colleges and uh, our, we have a very strong relationship with the Indiana University Northwest, my alma mater, School of Social Work. They are phenomenal with connecting us with bachelor level and master's level social services students that eventually just stay with us. So the level and the experience of our volunteers is a blessing because of the nature of the decisions that they're going to be making. We do need complex thinkers when, when necessary uh, and those that just have a heart to give. There is a background check that is required. Can you talk a little bit about that training that goes into this? Because it's not that, hey, I raise my hand and I say, you know, I want to volunteer in the name of a loved one, uh, for instance. But there is some extensive training that goes into this as well, because there's a lot that you need to know, correct? Correct. (laughs) And thank you for mentioning the background check, because, yes, that is definitely a big part of the criteria, too. And the training, you must continue, you must complete what we've grown to actually offer is not just in-person training. And and back in the day, Dee, when I first started, Mm -hmm. we did 40 hours. Wow. And 40 hours was literally like almost three weeks of training. And uh, that would be probably a couple days a week, evenings after work. And now we've kind of morphed that into modernizing it and making it a little bit more attractive because we also know that people work and have families. So we've kind of condensed that in-person experience, but with COVID hit, we really had to change some things and we adapted the virtual option. That has just been probably one of our biggest successes to actually get people to attend virtually. So that is a new option that we offer. Those sessions are not 10 sessions. We do six sessions. Um, and they are on the platform of Microsoft Teams, and we, we really look forward to, to – we have a very tight training component and structure and agenda that concludes and kind of includes every part of a decision that we – from our experience and from what changes in our world, what we think our volunteers will face. So there's a night where we completely just give the night to the court. We honor our probate commissioner. Our current probate commissioner, we love him so, uh, Commissioner Benjamin Ballou, that sits under the Honorable Judge Bruce Parent, who oversees our program. He makes his presence at a session, and he just kind of tells the volunteer the perspective of the court, their responsibilities, the Indiana Code, kind of breaks that down. Then we talk about privacy, HIPAA compliance, pretty, very big for us, because we do have to protect the information of our clients. Then we do talk about resources, ending of life, healthcare decisions. We have a wonderful group of trainers that are nurses. And so we we actually have one who has put together such a wonderful, detailed training component that talks about all the medical decisions, gives visual cues. It's, It's an amazing training. And then we do ending of life. We have a local hospice care provider that gives all kind of resources and so it, it is It is an excellent training, and it's for free. You get all of this information for free. And what we tell our volunteers in the training is that 
you you can use this information for your client, but it's also beneficial for your families or friends. So pass the information along. So yeah, it, it, it is an excellent training, but the training must be completed in order for you to be considered uh, a candidate to be sworn in as a as an official VASIA volunteer agent. So yeah, it's it's an excellent training. So Levine, we're speaking to you today in recognition of National Hospice and Palliative Care Month, as well as National Family Caregivers Month. And you think you kind of answered my next question. And that is, what about a loved one that is serving in the capacity of a caregiver that's just looking for additional information, not necessarily that they are in the position to volunteer to be an advocate for someone else in the community, but they just need help with information. And, And I should share with you that I myself am a caregiver for my grandfather. And when he came to our home... It was a bit overwhelming, to say the least. You know, we didn't know the who, we didn't know what, we didn't know where, anything. And it sounds like if we had been a part of this training, some of those bumpy roads that we we went down early on, we would not have gone through them had we had the access to the training. And and it's still uh, difficult for us, uh, to be honest. But, you know, what about those caregivers? Can they come in and be a part of the training just so that they can equip and prepare themselves? Yes. Yes, T. That that's actually one of another uh, arm and leg of community uh, involvement that we want to present to the community is making sure that you don't have to commit to being a Vasia volunteer. It's it's the information is out there to share with the fast track trainings. It's what we call those too. That's another option that we've started to adapt with the training program within itself, and that's a half a day training. Where we're doing, it's fast track though. It is pretty fast. We're going through uh, some of the key components of the training for anyone that would want to participate. We actually had our area one on aging case managers attend our last fast track training and a couple other individuals, just like you said, just for general knowledge, Mm -hmm. just to know what's out there, what's changed, what resources, because there is a lot that's changing within the guardianship community and other options out there for for families to really use least restrictive things, such as supported decision-making. There are so many things that the state of Indiana is really looking at, and VASTI is a part of it. So we love to filter out that information through the training. We're speaking with LaVon Jarrett, Director of the Volunteer Advocates for Seniors and Incapacitated Adults, or VASIA program, now based at the Franciscan Health Dyer location. So we talked about VASIA's volunteers, but let's take a moment to talk about the program participants. If a friend or neighbor is concerned about a community member that may not have an advocate or even someone is in need, how can they do so? How can they get in contact with the organization? That's great. So we are very proud and happy to be partnering with our Lake County Adult Protective Services, and we have a strong agreement with them. This way, we can filter through individuals within the community. When we were first originated, and and for quite some time, we were only taking referrals from institutions, hospitals, nursing homes, facilities. We partnered with Adult Protective so that we can start targeting another group, and that's the community within itself. So I always advise people, your first entity to contact is Adult Protective Services. Adult Protective moves on, does the, of course, what they do best wellness checks, just making sure that the person has the resources and capacity. If there is a question of capacity, Adult Protective Services does assist in that way. I can't fully put the responsibility on them because it is case by case, but that would be my first recommendation to involve us 
if there's a community member needing services. So as we've shared, the program recruits, trains, and supervises community volunteers to serve as the guardians. Volunteers are sworn in and appointed by the Lake County Superior Court. Now, I understand that you guys are so excited because you have another graduating class coming up. Can you tell us about that? Yes, we are super duper excited. We do continue. We do try to hold swearing in ceremonies at least twice a year. Um, and we're going to be doing that again this year. And these are folks that actually attended our fall training and the individuals that are going to be completing the fast track training. And what happens in that swearing in ceremony is they actually take an oath, a volunteer oath to by statement and it's line upon line. They raise their right hands, and, and we're so blessed to be able to do our ceremonies within the courtroom of our probate commissioner. And so he he swears them in, they take the oath, and then we give them a pen just to mark the day as being such a special day that they are officially vastly a volunteer agent. And what we pride ourselves in is letting them know the value that they're going to be adding at that ceremony. They're given a gift and a certificate of participation and completion for completing the training. And then from that point, we vet them for a case. We're very mindful that once a person has been sworn in, sometimes circumstances changes and people are not available. We, we're very sensitive to that. And then sometimes people are ready to get going. And so we do have our volunteer coordinator, Francisca Mendoza, that makes sure that the person is assigned a case whenever they're ready. And it is based on where the person lives. We're mindful of that. If they have a sensitivity for someone that's dying, we're mindful of that as well. So we take all of those things into account for case assignment after they're sworn in. And finally, LaVon, you've shared so much information for community members in Northwest Indiana. Um, for anyone that's listening to us right now that would like to find out more information or they have expressed an interest, where can they go? Call me directly. My number is 219-933-7907. It's always best to just kind of conversate and make sure that this is an experience that they want to have, if it's a good fit. And if they are interested, we set up an appointment for them to come and meet our staff. I, we have a wonderful team. Uh, Barbara L. Melendez is our manager. Francisca Mendoza, who I mentioned before, is our volunteer coordinator. And Mr. Brian Drummond is our VASIA specialist, also social worker. So the volunteer, the prospect will come in and we'll interview and we'll talk to the person and just make sure the experience is the best for them. So, yeah, give me a call. LaVon Jarrett is the director of the Volunteer Advocates for Seniors and Incapacitated Adults based at Franciscan Health Dyer. LaVon, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you, Dee. Thank you so much. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. Thanks to our guest, and we'll be back with you next week with an all-new show.